0: Hi, this is Jim Lobedo. I'm the president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on BizTalk Radio Show. I started BizTalk so you can have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group, which is in the business of helping the leadership of growth-oriented companies realize their potential. We do this by working with their sales force and helping those individuals discover and develop their unique abilities, and then align those abilities with their opportunities. That's why we're known as a sales force development company. I hope you enjoy this podcast. On our program today is Lee Brower. Lee is the author of the new book out called The Brower Quadrant, Live Life Deliberately. Lee, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much, Jim. Delighted to be here.
0: Lee, before we get started, uh, I want to go back and and get back in touch with when you were thinking about putting this book together and you were deciding what to put in that, if you can just share with our audience what was really kind of the genesis behind you wanting to write this book.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, you've asked a question that uh, I hope your audience enjoys uh, my candor because I don't know how to do it any other way. However, in my office, they began referring to, um, the Brower Quadrant as the book, because it literally took, um, years for, for me to complete it. And it, it started out as a fable, uh, and then it, uh, emerged into some, and it was focused primarily at the very, very affluent. And, and then it uh, transitioned more into identifying over 30 years of experiences and stories, what, um, I consider to be the secrets for what started out as being the secrets for wealth moving through the generations. But when you're dealing with true principles and true laws and you're willing to ignore traditional boundaries and just say, okay, if I have a clean slate, what what really works and what doesn't work and what has worked. As we started studying how financial assets move through generations, we had amazing discoveries along the way. Some discoveries that indicated to us that this isn't just for the super wealthy, some of these discoveries we determined and have proven are for everybody because they're built upon natural laws. And so as these discoveries started to happen, and I recognized that in our world, our traditional world that we find not only in the United States, but around the world, globally, universally, uh, that we've accepted for years um, that they're myths, they were wrong. We've just done it because that's the way we've always done it. It reminds me of the story of the uh, they are sitting down, the the family. They were sitting down for dinner, and um, she took the roast out of the oven or the, the ham out of the oven. And said, why'd you cut the end off the ham? And she said, Well, I I don't know, because you know that's the way Mama always did it. And I says, Well, Mom's right here. Let's ask her. So why'd you take cut the end off the roast? And she said, Well, because that's the way my mother always did it. And so they well, they said, Well, great grandma's still around. Let's ask her. So they called her up, and she said, Well, because the oven was too small. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, and, and you look at certain things, I mean, for example, in the area of estate planning, which is an integrated part of how money moves through the generations, and that is where my focus and background began 30 years ago, working very fortunate to work with some of the more prominent names that you would all recognize, uh, in, you know, in in our country and in the world, really. Uh, but, you know, when you really think about what the estate planning is, and the movement of assets through generations, uh, we came to the conclusion, I came to the conclusion, disturbingly so, because this was my profession, that probably the estate planners or the state planning industry, the cottage industry of estate planning, has done more to destroy families than taxes will ever do. And caught into that paradigm of wealth and putting so much emphasis and importance on wealth over other things that are uh, critically essential for success, uh, you know, I, I think that businesses today are currently paying a big price. Families today are currently paying a big price as a result of it.
0: Lee, you made a comment that some of the traditional financial planning that has gone on has caused more damage than taxes. Tell me more about that.
1: As I evolved, understand this, I started in the 1970s, late 70s, in doing estate planning. very fortunate to be hired by one of the, what was considered at the time, predominant, uh, financial slash estate planning firms in the country. And uh, I worked exclusively with uh, a fellow that had as his clientele a president of the United States, uh, many movie stars, entertainers, people of this nature. And I was the fly on the wall. I was like a kid in a candy store. I mean, I would sit there quietly and just observe. And then I would go home at night and get my wife and uh, other business colleagues and say, then he did this. I mean, I knew the way he held his, he would hold his glasses. I knew how he moved. I studied everything that he did, and and I would go to probate court every Friday and just sit there with another attorney who uh, was a probate attorney, and we would just discuss what was going on. That was my hobby. I became fascinated by money and how money moves through the generations, obsessed by it almost. And somewhere along the way, as I became more and more knowledgeable, the outcome of the planning that we were done was not you know the, the the proof was not in the pudding i mean the proof was in the pudding it, it, the fact of the matter is that statistically there's a worldwide statistic that says roughly anywhere close to this it's a it's a disaster but 97% of all financial assets never survives third generation that's a worldwide statistic and i'm thinking well if that's my business is to help families and businesses and individuals survive their, you know preserve and protect their assets, their financial assets going forward into their children and grandchildren and so on then our industry, if that's the result, we're failing.
0: It's a, it's a 97% failure rate.
1: Yeah I mean that's not a very good a success rate to build an industry on. And so here I'm sitting at, with at that time you know some almost 20 years of experience and uh, saying to myself well what have I chosen for my life's profession? You know, I mean, yes, I've done very well as for financially but what is my stewardship now to my financial wealth and when does it end? And then, you know, what role should I play going forward? And I put it out to the universe. I started asking that. You know, what is my role? And out of that, certain incidences, incidences happened along the way. First and foremost, we start recognizing that perhaps we have assets that we value more than our money. And along that line, we developed a concept around the family bank and banking assets. And I guess in summary, and I'll lead you through the discovery in just a minute, but I guess a metaphor of what, where we were would be the following. Let me ask those that are listening, which would you rather have? Tiger Woods clubs and trophies, or would you rather have Tiger Woods swing and course knowledge? You'd rather have it, uh, you know, you, you, you would answer, I would rather have his swing and course knowledge. And you would respond by saying, if I had his swing, and I had this course knowledge that I could get my own trophies in my own clubs. And really the traditional estate planning business, unfortunately, is all about dividing up the clubs and dividing up the trophies. And has very little to do with the swing and the course knowledge. So what happens is one child gets the driver, another one gets the putter. They won't share. Mine. They, they go from we to me, you know, being what shall we do to what is mine and what shall I do and the dynamics of the family changes. I did an interview many years ago with Alexander Haig, General Alexander Haig. And in that TV interview, and it was recorded, one of the questions I asked him was, General, when you face the enemy, you encounter the enemy, what are one of the keys to success in that battle? And he responded by saying, Lee, we, we have to come up with ways to divide the enemy. If we can divide the enemy up, our chances to conquer dramatically increases. You know, divide and conquer. And I said, isn't it crazy that in the estate planning world, the first rule of estate planning is to divide? Mm-hmm. How many heirs do you have? And let's divide the assets up amongst those heirs. The system itself is designed to be doomed. It is, it is inherent within the system that the practical ways of doing estate planning in this country sets us up for failure as I realized, that, it's terribly disturbing, but there had to be a solution to it. And we started focusing on how to capture and preserve those assets that matter the most. What are those assets that you wouldn't sell? And we, we, so the whole concept of the family bank theory evolved.
0: So, Lee, you realized there was something missing in estate planning. Where did you get the idea that what was missing was this quadrant?
1: And for me, I don't know where you get your good ideas, Jim. Uh, Mine don't come when I'm asking for them. They come when I least expect it. I put the question out, but the answer comes sometime in the future. And For me, it happens more often in the shower. For many people, it happens while they're driving or just not really thinking about it. But for me, it happened in the shower. And I was in the shower, and bam, 4 o'clock in the morning, jumped out, wrote down some ideas. That morning, I was on a plane flying to Atlanta, sitting next to a lady who was a businesswoman. She owned a uh, uh, some craft uh, jewelry stores and uh, custom, and but her husband also managed uh, real estate in the Western United States for probably the largest holder of real estate in the Western United States. And we were just chit chatting, and of course, as usually comes up, she asked me, "What do you do?" Now I had the four o'clock answer, I had the four a.m. answer, and I pulled the only thing I had to write on at the time was a napkin. And I pulled it out and set it down, and so this is what we call the napkin presentation. I'm going to give you a very short version of it. But I asked, when she said, what do you do, I responded with, I optimize assets. Hmm. She looked at me and goes, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, when you hear the word assets, what do you think of? And she said, well, real estate, jewelry. Those are the two things that were closest to her mind, of course. But then she said, stocks and bonds and businesses and cars and artwork and, you know, and and retirement plans, and and so down in, I, I drew a set of quadrants, a line that ran horizontally and a line that ran vertically to create four quadrants on this napkin, and in the southwest quadrant, I wrote down things, financial, and we made a list down in that southwest quadrant, then the next question is, do you possess assets that you value more than your things? She says, well, of course, my two daughters, my husband. My. So I said, so family. And I wrote family up in the Northwest Quadrant. And I said, what you're saying is you wouldn't trade your family for more of these things, the money. and the other. No, of course not. But what a, then she said, my health. I, so you were saying you wouldn't trade your health for more money. No. What about your values? Your, you know, not just your values, but your virtuous values. I mean, everybody has values. Hitler had values. And so values don't necessarily mean a good thing, but virtuous values. So we, we talked about virtuous values. She says, of course not. I wouldn't trade money for any of those. And, and then we named some more. I mean, what about your heritage? What about your unique ability, your talent that you're born with? Would you trade that for more money? If you had, if you had to lose it, give it away and never have it again, would you trade it for more money? No, of course not. And so we identified that quadrant then as really our core assets, the things that are intrinsic to us, that we're kind of born with. You know, and it creates our individual health, happiness, and well being. And then over in the upper right hand corner, we wrote down then we have must, if we have intrinsic assets, we must have extrinsic assets. And so we looked at experiences. And we said, okay, what about experiences? What are some of the experiences that become assets? And she immediately said, education. And uh, formal education, absolutely, that's an asset. And what about experiences themselves? And so we wrote experiences. Just the good experiences? No, the bad experiences as well. What about our networks? What about our reputation and other relationships or alliances or methods or skills, the way we do things? What about traditions as opposed to our heritage? Or, you know? And so we made a list up in that right-hand corner. And, and it was a delightful discussion, candidly. Uh, I mean, I was learning as I was going. Remember, this is the first time I'd ever done this. and So I called those then experience assets and put it up in the Northeast Quadrant. Now, down in the Southeast Quadrant, we had this blank. And so I said, you know, one of the things that we've learned and we continue to learn, and today I call this the Gratitude Quadrant, but we really talked about contribution, that when people are in a spirit of gratitude, when they're giving back and they're serving and helping others, when they're making contributions to others for their benefit, then in reality, they are that's creating an asset an intangible asset that creates tangible results and so the first when i first put it down and this has taken a lot of exploration over the years but when i first put it down i wrote down contribution i said the government defines contribution as giving back to society to do good and they call it what taxes now we did a study in 1999 rolling into the 21st century with uh, with affluent uh, individuals an independent study and, and they went out and, and the study went out and asked them questions and one of the questions was coming into the 21st century as they age and mature what what is their greatest fears and their first their number one fear was loss of choice and control mm-hmm. and I think about that and I think about that in terms of taxes and, and I so I asked her the question do you consider taxes to be a liability or an asset and her response candidly was I'm a Democrat I believe in paying taxes so is it an asset or a liability? And she said, well, an accountant would put it as a liability. So if we divided this plane right down the middle and we said everybody on the right-hand side will not pay taxes anybody anymore, and everybody on the left-hand side, side will continue to pay taxes, but everybody on the right-hand side will not be able to avail themselves of anything that taxes are used for. And we were talking a year from now and you were talking to somebody that was on the right side, and you were saying, do you pay taxes? And they said, no, we don't. You would say, oh, I'm so sorry. You've really missed out on so many wonderful things, education and roads and all these great things and protection and fire and that, that are provided, that are assets to us. But yet we look at taxes as a liability, and the reason being is that because of loss of choice and control. So you look at that southeast quadrant, you say, how do we bring back choice and control into that area? How do we make contribution an asset that works for us? And how do we use it to overcome our addiction to other things? And so that area has become very strong, and the, the willingness to be givers to society as opposed to just takers. So we talked about those four areas, and when we got done, I was sitting there looking at this. This was the very first time I'd ever done it. And my next question to her was this. Well, would you want your children to benefit from all four of these quadrants and she said absolutely i'd like him to benefit from our financial efforts i'd like him to imbe- to benefit from good health and family values and heritage and and to you know to keep their values foremost and and uh, i would like them to benefit from not only their experiences but our experiences to stand on our shoulders as it relates to uh, our reputation and their reputation and to develop their own skills and certainly i'd like them to have a, a, an attitude of empowerment as opposed to an attitude of entitlement where they're truly giving back, absolutely. And I said, well, what if you couldn't give them all four? What if you had to leave one of these behind and just said, this one you can't get, but we'll give you the other three? Which one would you leave behind? And it didn't take her any time at all. She pointed right to that Southwest Quad and said, we'd leave the financial behind. Mm-hmm. And chills ran down my spine because all of a sudden I'm getting answers to questions i would had. I had wondered why was it was that... that uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, when he died in 1887 as the wealthiest man on earth? Why was it that in 1973, when 120 uh, Vanderbilt families met at Vanderbilt University, that there wasn't one millionaire amongst the bunch? Why was it? Why was the fact that wealth didn't move through the generations? Why didn't it survive more than two or three generations? I mean, 70% of all wealth never survives the second generation. And, you know, you're just, why, why, why? And all of a sudden, these answers started coming to me when I asked this question. So I, I said, well, you would leave the financial behind? She says, yes. I said, why is that? She says, well, because I know that if my kids are bankrupt in their core assets or in their experience assets or in their contribution assets, that the financial will go away. But if they're rich in those three categories, then the financial will take care of itself and children down my spine. I It was just like here was this answer. It was right in front of my eyes. It reminds me of Albert St. Georgie, the great Nobel laureate, that said discovery consists of seeing what everybody has seen. We'd all seen it and thinking what nobody has thought. And there it was right in front of me. So my next question was, have you ever done estate planning? And she says, several times. Where did you and your advisors focus? Again, didn't take her any time at all to put her finger right on that southwest quadrant. And I said, all of them? She said, yes, all of them. But we, didn't we just decide that if our, that if we would focus on these other three, that this would take care of itself? I'm not proposing that you don't do any planning there. What I'm saying is you don't do it at the exclusion of the other three. And there began the genesis, the seed, if you will, of a whole new way of thinking. That once the mind is expanded, you start asking different questions. Mm-hmm. And when you ask different questions, you're going to get different answers, and different answers are going to lead to different results. And that's at what, that's what that point. Here began the genesis of the Brouwer Quadrant. And somewhere along the way, there was uh, you know an intervention, and we realized that what we were doing wasn't just for the affluent, it was for everybody. And it has application not only in families, it has application in businesses. Uh, the applications of, of these core principles of what we're talking about uh, apply everywhere.
0: Lee, some of our listeners may be saying to themselves, well, I know this guy, Lee Bauer, Lee Bauer, wherever i heard it before, and it'll dawn on him, oh, he's the gratitude guy. In other words, you were in the movie The Secret, and you talked about gratitude. And I know it's a big part of what you write about in the book. So talk to our audience about the concept of gratitude.
1: The concept of gratitude. I, um, you know, I, Right now, some people call me the gratitude guy. They call me the rock guy and uh because of the experience that we had with the movie The Secret and in uh, the book The Secret and I didn't I, I wouldn't have considered myself prior to the quadrants the rock guy or the gratitude guy uh, I've just learned you know I mean I've had experiences that have now taught me the role that gratitude plays for example in a successful business and in successful life and what's beautiful right now is to see programs at different universities coming out and with uh, studies that are showing the power of gratitude uh, as as it relates to success and as it relates to happiness. Grateful people are attractants. I mean, how many of your listeners enjoy being around people who are ungrateful? You don't. Mm. It attracts greater people into your life, greater relationships, it attracts greater opportunities into your life. And for me, it, it wasn't something that was natural for me. I, I think if you look at, for example, Babies coming out of the womb don't jump out and say, thank you, Mom and Dad. Even if they could talk, they wouldn't, because they're born with a special gift, and that's the gift of self-love, the gift to love themselves. If you hand a baby something when they're big enough to handle it, they'll take it and put it right to their mouth. Everything centers around them, and as it should at that particular stage in growth in life. But as they get older, we start teaching them about brotherly love and that they need to share. And so now we start moving into that gratitude, and it's something that becomes learned inherent in it, but it's something that becomes learned by practicing it. So for me, I carry a rock in my pocket, and this rock reminds me each day as I, get, I have it sitting next to my wallet. When I pick it, I'm looking at it as we're talking right now. And as I get up in the morning, I look at that rock. I think about the people and the opportunities that I have in my life, about the opportunities and people I have in my life that day, and what I'm grateful for. And I focus in on that and that's the way I begin my day. It's a system. It goes back to Deming's rule of ninety four percent of all failures a result of the system. And then during the day as I touch it, I'm reminded of that and at night when I go to bed I take the rock out of my pocket, put it down with my wallet, get down on my knees again, and express gratitude for all that I've learned and experienced that day. And you know, Dan Sullivan, the great entrepreneurial uh, thinker that has created the, the you know, the strategic coaching program, one of his rules is always make your learning greater than the experience. So regardless of the experiences that I have, whereby in worldly standards they may be considered either good or bad, the reality is by taking the time to learn from that experience and having an assistant to do so, always makes that experience an asset. And that's an asset I can bank on, and if I do it appropriately, capitalize that asset, optimize that asset appropriately, it's one that I can withdraw on over and over and over again in the future.
0: And Lee, you you touch upon it in your book, and from other conversations I've had with you. In addition to gratitude, uh, talk to our audience a little bit about how this all ties together with leadership.
1: Well, you know, I uh, you and I have talked before about this, and I think we're on the same page. Is, you know, when you look at, um, and and you're such a great leader yourself in terms of teaching leadership. Uh, I've learned. Uh, have learned so much from you already, Jim. I just want to make sure that you understand how much I appreciate your expertise in leadership. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, I say that the, the tenets for uh, optimizing or empowering the fuel behind the quadrant, the, the Brower Quadrant system, is four areas. One is gratitude first. Everything begins with gratitude. Okay. And we do not start a meeting without uh, expressing gratitude for what the positive experiences that are going on in our life. We do this around the dinner table. Our family, for years, uh, before we could walk in the house and complain, uh, the kids from school or me from work or, or, any, or the wife at home or at work, and, uh, is that uh, uh, we had to say three positive things before we could say anything negative. And it's had, uh, I mean, I can witness to you, it's had a profound effect in our lives, as we've watched uh, our own struggles, as we've watched our children you know, fight, we've had a couple of our children some fight some amazing health battles, and uh, to see their attitude and uh, be strengthened by their attitude, I know, as a result of, of that experience. So gratitude is first and foremost, leadership is second, and then there's two others that follow on that that we may have time to talk about, and that's legacy and leverage. But let's talk about leadership. And we're, we are in, let's talk about leadership versus management for just a second. We are in a, an environment in the United States, and in the world, really, because we're really a global economy now, where management is, at, is excelling like it's never excelled before. Uh, we have better management techniques Better management principles. We can deliver knowledge and information faster, so that you can make management decisions faster than you've ever made them before. We have an entrepreneurial society, which includes consultants that have are developing and continue to develop better ways to manage. And as a result of that entrepreneurial effort, and as a result of the speed and the accuracy of information being transferred, accumulated data, stored in and evaluated um, faster and better. Our managers have become, uh, management is continuing to excel. However, is it excelling at the expense of leadership? And what our studies are showing that while management is excelling, leadership is lagging way behind. And we see this not only uh, in our country at the highest levels We've seen it through this last election, and to lasted you know through a number of different administrations. We're seeing it currently. Um, we um, we see it in our communities. We see it in our a lot of our large companies now, where management decisions have been made um, to improve short-term results uh, at the expense of the long-term vision of the companies, and we're paying the prices for it now. And we see it in our homes, and so we're seeing you know that whole aspect of it and, I, and management from my standpoint operates off of goals leadership operates fundamentally from vision and a leader's primary responsibility is to establish the vision and to clearly get buy-in from everybody on the vision and then to visit it frequently and, and uh, with passion and, and keep it alive and keep it going and if your vision is short term then that's management if your vision is long-term and is revisited and the decisions that you're making are based upon the long-term vision, then we're moving into leadership. Now, let's take the home. I'll give you a, a, a kind of a classic example, maybe of leadership versus management. We've become so good at becoming soccer parents and soccer moms and dads and uh, moving our kids from one, um, you know, lesson to the next lesson. They go from their school lessons to their a hobby lessons to their sports lessons, and, and we become adept at moving them around. We're able to do business while we're watching a soccer game because of technology. Um, and so we're able to do so much more in terms of creating opportunities for our kids to the point that perhaps we've become very, very good at protecting them and are, are doing very little to really prepare them for the real world. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, you would walk out into the street, throw a bat up in the air, and somebody would catch it, and then the other person put his hand on top of it. You'd put your hand on top of his, and you'd work your way up to the crown. And then you that person got to choose first. And in my area, there was one kid, Chuck, that always got picked last. And, uh, you know, I'd feel bad for him, so if I got to pick sometimes, I'd pick him next to last occasionally or something, just so he wouldn't feel, always feel bad. But, you know, Chuck became a very successful businessman, married a wonderful woman, has a wonderful family. Uh, has been a california state legislator one of the most successful people i know and um, i think he learned at an early age what life's all about and that you're just in there to keep fighting and struggling and learning and always make your learning great experience i think today with all the rules that parents impose on teams and the kids have got to play this many minutes and everybody's got to be treated equally and and they bombard them with all this your wonderful stuff that you you really run the the the, the risk of overprotecting them to the extent of being having them not prepared. Look at the rating system that we have uh, right now for movies. I mean, uh, you all are familiar with the rating system of, you know, it started in the 1970s and then uh, in the late 70s, early 80s they added PG-13 and uh, it's continued to expand and they uh, some entrepreneurs saw this as an entrepreneurial effort to be able to support families in a great need because it was difficult for parents to screen all the movies that their kids would be going to see so let me ask you a question if if you have teenagers you know this experience or if you've been a teenager you know this experience when a teenager walks in and says we can i go to the movies typically the first the next question they're going to ask there's three questions who are you going with what are you going to see and then what's it rated? But have you ever been sitting next to somebody, your significant other, your spouse, been sitting there watching a movie, sitting in the theater, and all of a sudden you turn to them and say, "What is this rated?" Mm-hmm. And just been completely surprised by it. And so here we have systems of management, but we de- we give away then the opportunity for leadership in exchange for the convenience of management. And this happens in the workplace. It happens everywhere. So how do we become better leaders? First and foremost, you have to have the vision. Because if you have the right vision, it'll sustain any present agonies. it'll sustain any present uh, struggles that you're going through if you have the right vision. And so once you have the vision then you have to figure out how do we get into motion and how do we make that happen. One of the opposite, one of the great management tools that has I from my perspective has impacted upon leadership is the whole use of goals and how goals are used in our society and how we has become a prevalent uh, system that um, has created more harm than it has good, and and what for years now we've spent a it's been a two dollar penalty in our company in our home if anybody uses the G word we call it the G word you know goals and um, and we've and all of our consulting is centered around that but if you're going to focus in on that you have to have something that replaces it but very interesting there's a there's a a, a abstract uh, that's just come out. Uh, it's, it's, under, it's published under Harvard Business School, but it was actually a joint effort um, by three schools, uh, individuals from three schools, from the Eller College of Management at Arizona, the University of Arizona, and by um, Wharton School in Pennsylvania, and, of course, Kellogg School at Northwestern and Harvard. But um, the topic was Goals Gone Wild, and in the abstract of what they're talking about, I have a little paragraph here I'll just share with you. Um, It says, uh, in this article, we argue that the beneficial effects of goal setting have been overstated and that systemic harm caused by goal setting has been largely ignored. We identify specific side effects associated with goal setting, including a narrow focus that neglects non-goal areas, a rise in unethical behavior, distorted risk preferences, corrosion of organizational culture, and reduced intrinsic motivation. So rather than dispensing goal-setting as a benign over-the-counter treatment for motivation, managers and scholars need to conceptualize goal-setting as a prescription-strength medication that requires careful dosing, consideration of harmful side effects, and close supervision. We offer a warning label to accompany the practice of setting goals. And then they go on with a very technical approach in sharing why they've come up with those conclusions. Well, I was, you know... uh, I was thrilled to see that because it just coincides so clearly with what we have been seeing for some time.
0: Oh, and, and is uh, and is that why in your book Lee you, you have a chapter that has an interesting title that says good goodbye to goals.
1: That's right. And then if you follow that up, uh that you know I think that's in chapter 10, uh you've got to have some way of uh uh replacing that and so later on in one of the subsequent ch- chapters that it shares with you what has been the and, uh, and it starts with the seed that i learned from coach john wooden uh who uh, some of your listeners will know who he is is uh, the most successful uh, division one basketball coach ever and john is 99 years old now he'll be excuse me he'll be 99 next month uh, in october he's a dear friend and uh I've learned so much from him, but he's the one that really put me on to uh, some alternative paths on what you can do in lieu of goal setting. So, um, it would, you know, I, I would love to share with your
0: listenership what, uh, what that's all about. The best place to get it is probably get the book. And- Absolutely. And, and Lee, you, you get to work with uh, a lot of business owners, I'm assuming, in the work that you do. Yes. And what's the one piece of advice? You're given those business owners now, given the environment we're in.
1: Well, what did we talk about in terms of number one? You know, I mean, I, number one is to stay in gratitude, and uh, you know, it, it's uh, kind of an interesting thing if you if you know if you study Victor Frankel's book, um, *Man's Search for Meaning*. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a part in there, is it's, it's not, it doesn't jump out at you, but, you know, I got it like on my third or fourth reading in that book, but he talks about how they um, survived, you know, how they survived in that camp, and here they had nothing, absolutely nothing, everything was taken away from them, and yet uh, Victor Frankl was able to identify the most important thing that they could take away from him was right in his head, and, and it stayed in the area of gratitude, Okay, being grateful, and And, um, uh, one of the little clues that he discovered that when his friends, his colleagues or fellow prisoners, uh, were going to die within 24 to 48 hours was that they stopped sharing their food. And when I read that, I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? Because you would almost think like if they were giving up, they would just stop eating, give their food away, but they actually stopped sharing their food and, um, and isn't that the way it is kind of in life? When we're not in gratitude, uh, we stop sharing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we start becoming, uh, move into an attitude of scarcity. And when you move into that attitude of scarcity, it's like taking your arms and wrapping them around yourself. And uh, when you do that, you, when you wrap your arms around yourself and you're not open, it's very difficult to give. And at the same time, it's impossible to receive and so to grow in this uh, current environment and to be able to look at what's going on you have to be realistic but being realistic starts with the abundance that we have in our lives and, and having systems in place to express our gratitude and for me if i could uh, encourage everybody to develop a system of gratitude for me it's the rock for other people it can be whatever works for them but i've not only do i have my own experience but i'm very fortunate to be able to receive emails from literally hundreds of people that express how gratitude in their lives and the systems of gratitude have helped them overcome amazing obstacles and, and achieve tremendous success in their lives. So if, if I named the, the, the number one thing, it would be maintain that attitude of gratitude, keep your arms open, look for opportunities to share. One of the things I learned from my son was that uh, Bo, years ago, he came in and said, you're not going to believe what happened to me today. That I was going through a drive-through restaurant, and I went up to pay, and the car in front of me had paid for me. And he was, you know, he was like a new person. He was ecstatic, and and, uh, and so I said, "Well, what are you going to do about it?" And he said, "Well, he already did it." He said, "I paid for the car behind me." And I thought, "And how do you feel after doing this?" He says, "I feel wonderful." And you know, when as, t- as tough as times are, and as sometimes some times are tough in our family, we do what we call a legacy breakfast, and we kids gather up their allowance and we go down to uh, have breakfast and we will sit there and we look around the restaurant and we look at couples, maybe they're arguing, and we say, look at that couple there, they they don't seem too happy right now. Or we maybe we look at a single mother and say, maybe I wonder with all those kids, I wonder if her husband's in Iraq or what's going on in their lives. And, and, uh, and we pick one, sometimes we'll pick two families, and we anonymously purchase their breakfast. And by staying in that attitude of abundance, by staying in that spirit, I can't tell you what that does psychologically and how it, it engages. When you do it with pure intention, uh, then it engages the law of attraction in a way that will that will attract greater relationships and greater opportunities to you uh, and allow you to see the opportunities that you couldn't see otherwise that are so abundant even now when times are tough.
0: Mm-hmm. And and Lee? Is there one question today uh, that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? You'd like to maybe share some other insight with our audience as we wrap it up here today?
1: That's a, that is a great question, <laughs> Jim. Is there one question that you didn't <laughs> ask sweet. that you should <laughs> have asked? Um, you know, um, I've been told that you're a great interviewer and, I, and I, I, now I have proof of it I think you've done an, an excellent job of just walking this through there. you've gotten me excited about my own stuff again so hopefully it has I mean I'm always excited about it but anytime I get an opportunity to talk about it in, in a format like this where the questions are asked probably just gets me that much more revved up um, you know I, I think that um, it, the only question and I don't know exactly how to phrase it so let me give the answer and then see if there's a question that's is, that is sure. associated with it um I truly believe that with technology all of the technology that's in the world today and with how fast we have experiences that it's been said that the average person experiences more in a single year than our ancestors did in a lifetime we see we do and we uh, more than I mean and, and and the aspect of that that's when that happens when we're blessed with that kind of technology that kind of information these wonderful things that are happening in our lives along with it comes the opposite and the opposite is that uh, uh, technology also has created a tremendous amount of intrusion into our lives and uh, we put up walls around our homes to protect uh, creepy people from coming in and hurting our children yet we uh, consciously allow uh, The creepiness to come over our walls and through the through the waves of uh, internet and uh, technology right into our right into our kids' uh, uh, computers and their handheld devices, their music, and all this other thing. And, And I believe that the absence of leadership that begins with gratitude and moves into leadership, but the absence of leadership within our families is being more and more demonstrated actually within the business and within the culture of our country. And uh, if we strengthen us as individuals and our families so that we can take advantage of all this technology in such a way that we preserve it for our children. For example, simple things, how powerful has been the ability to tell stories over the years and to be able to learn from what grandpa did and great grandpa did and having that pride of culture, that pride of tradition, that pride of a family culture to, to, to help you become who you are, to be able to make decisions based upon these great stories. And we've lost our ability to tell stories in our families. We've lost the ability to transfer that because we can delegate it. As good managers, we can delegate that to others. So oftentimes we scoop our droopy-eyed kids up off the floor at night and haul them off to bed, because, and we've delegated to the TV set the responsibility to transfer stories to our children. And what stories are they transferring? And I personally believe the effect of this absence of leadership that's in our home, because we're taking advantage to manage better because of technology, it's having is already having a profound effect on our economy and the country and our freedoms that we have. And so I would say that uh, if, if you could center a question, probably this question centers around freedom, What should we be doing to protect our freedom in our life? And I think it centers on rebuilding the leadership within the family. If I could take the word of state planning, I'd like to throw it away and just replace it with family leadership. Our business would be stronger and our families would be stronger.
0: Yeah. So the possible question could be what leadership opportunities are being presented to you every day but you're not slowing down enough to recognize them and take the opportunity to lead. that's a very
1: good question I need to write that one down Jim (laughs) that's a good question
0: well Lee I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today on our program and to share with our audience and again the book is The Brower Quadrant How to Live Life Deliberately it's available at Amazon.com and Lee is there a website if people wanted to learn more about either The Brower Quadrant yourself or the book what would the website be?
1: Yeah, probably the easiest website to go to is leebrower.com. Uh, if you find things that interest you in the area of Quadrant Living, it'll redirect you to quadrantliving.com. But the easiest to remember is just leebrower.com.
0: Great. Lee, thanks for being on the program. Thank you, Jim. It's been a delight. This or other BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website at www.biztalkradioshow.com. Or you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. If you want to learn the strategies how to take your sales force to the next level, you can contact the Performance Group at 800-550-9509 or visit us on the web at www.pmgllc.net.